welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. All right, with me today is a new friend, um, and I say friends because Joel and I are, Joel is partnering with me and my buddy Manny and another thing we do called Arma and Joel is joining on board. Uh, and so I figured why not bring Joel into everyday theology world and have a good podcast with him. But I've got Joel Mudamale, Mudamali. See, we even talked about this and I still messed it up. <laughs> Everyone's like new friends. Sure you are, right? Right. Um, Listen, I've had friends for years and years and years and years, and they're still switching up my last name. So you're you're in good company. Cool. My mom, um, I think, changes her last name just for the fun of it. So know, fitting the context, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, Joel works with Proverbs Thirty One Ministries. We're fellow PhD students. He's got a lot that we're going to talk about in terms of this enigmatic image of God today. But Joel, first off, thanks for being with me. Appreciate it, man. You bet, uh, man. I'm excited. This is the second time this week we've tried to do this podcast. We got way sidetracked the last time. I think um, that's what happens when friends just start talking. We should have probably hit record last time towards the end of our conversation because, you know, so much, so much happened. But then everyone would have known our anger, you know, <laughs> <laughs> why we're so mad at everything. Right, right. Uh, this is the more reserved. We're like, you know, calming it down for the audience. Um. Joe, man, go ahead and give us a little bit about yourself, your story, you know, where you are now and how'd you got to, you know, do this stupid thing called working on a PhD. Yeah, man. Um, so if you guys could see me right now, um, you would know that I am uh, Indian. So I've got uh, darker skin uh, from from India. Um, and so my grandparents are missionaries in India. My faith journey is unique in the sense that if you know anything about India, you would know that India is like 99 point, you know, 3% not Christian. Um, and so my grandparents were converted by uh, British missionaries. And uh, some of my earliest memories uh, were watching my grandfather in India uh, preach the gospel to a group of people called the untouchables. Um, India has a caste system. And in the caste system, uh, depending on where you're born and where you land, that kind of determines the outlook of your life and your opportunities. And so this is going to actually play into the topic of our, of our conversation. Uh, but, uh, you know, I grew up in the Chicagoland area. I watched Jordan win the three peat. (laughs) I watched him repeat the three peat. Um, and I've, since then I've watched LeBron just try to catch the, the, the shadow of Jordan, which is not, not possible. This is a whole other podcast. This is a whole other podcast. (laughs) I, I love bringing this up because, you know, they're very like, it's like, it's like uh, Jordan and LeBron or uh, Tom Brady and just anything, you know, and Belichick or whatever you want, you want to say on the, on the football world. Uh, I don't even watch basketball and I'm passionate about this. Discussion. This is amazing. This and that, that in itself is so, I mean, okay. You don't even watch basketball and you're passionate about it. That, that tells oh, yeah. us so much. Uh, but you and know, I'm, and I'm, I'm a LeBron supporter. Uh, so, you know. That's okay. No. We can we can do an aftercut of the podcast for like premium members, and they can hear us go off on um, 
our, our debate. In fact, I, when I teach an apologetics course, uh, I actually have a slideshow where I talk about, you know, we defend what we love. And in my slideshow, I have LeBron versus Jordan um, stats. And, you know, it just lets you know, you will defend hmm. whatever it is that you love. Hmm. Um, so long story short, Chicago uh, grew up in, uh, in that environment, Chicago deep dish pizza, the whole nine yards, and really ran away from uh, any thought of doing ministry or going to vocational ministry or anything like that. I wanted to become a lawyer. And um, Lord got hold of my heart. And man, I just uh, felt a desire to do ministry, particularly in the area of theology. And so started my long, long wait. journey. Say, say that again? So too bad you didn't tell him to wait until after law school, <laughs> after you've made some money to be like, okay, now we can do the ministry thing. That would have been nice, especially once his PhD is done. And, uh, you know, the tuition bill is not nice at all. Oh, I'm, I'm the very odd person out that I actually have finished paying my PhD. Man. But haven't finished my PhD. There you go. That is odd. But, you yeah, know. It's, it's the byproduct of, you know, and this is just my story, but not getting married early. Yeah. That I actually had money. Um, even when I made nothing, when you're just single, you know. Yeah. You have you have a little more money nowadays. Yeah. I, I could see that strain. Yeah, and that is not my story. So I met my wife uh, while I was finishing my undergrad, and we got married early. And um, we we've been married for ten years now, and we have four children. And you know, so we're in the thick of it. So that is not uh, that is like the the polar opposite. Um, see, you're rich in love and family. And in debt of PhD bills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where I'm poor in all of it, except for now I can't say that because I have a wife and I love my wife. There you go. But no, no kids, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, we could talk on and on about my background. It's, it's, it's take, it takes a lot of different various turns, but ultimately I ended up at uh, Logos Bible Software working for them for uh, eight years. I helped launch uh, Faith Life Study Bible, faithlife.com, oversaw their um, presentation software. So I, I dipped my foot in technology. But in it all, I really realized that my passion was more in the area of theology and research and biblical studies. And so uh, my friend Lisa Turkhurst, um, gosh, eight years ago, started joking with me. I thought it was a joke, but she's been serious. Hey, would you come and bring oversight to our theological development at the ministry? And, you know, uh, when you have four kids or at that time, three kids, and you're doing about 170,000 uh, air miles, primarily local in a year, uh, the thought of slowing down and really focusing in on the area of your passion uh, was really exciting and enticing, both for me and for my wife and for my kids. And so yeah. we ended up uh, in the ministry. I've been here now almost five years. That's awesome, man. Um, I, I probably have a lot of questions about kind of that track of life. And again, everyone's like, well, shouldn't you know that? You said your friends, new friends, new, new friends. Um, but we'll, we'll offline about that too. But that's right, man. So today we're talking about uh, this, this phrase. It's only ever even used once in scripture, at least in its kind of exact form or maybe just kind of like it's explicit form. I mean, there's definitely places, other, other places in scripture where the image of God is kind of, you know, flirted around with, but not really discussed, right. uh, you know, centrally, but that makes that all the more confusing to talk about it. Cause probably, you know, every Christian or even someone who's maybe flirted with the idea of Christianity has probably heard the phrase being made in the image of God. But for so many people, it, 
doesn't make sense. It, I think it also causes some actually really bad theology when we start thinking about some of the, some of the ways in which people have used it to create hierarchies. Some of that stuff we're going to talk about today, mm-hmm. but it's a confusing one. At the same time, it's an important one because it really does mean a lot to the way that we make theological formation. So my question for you, just to kind of kick us off is, you know, why did you start thinking about this topic of the image of God to get you to a point of having conversations about it, studying it and working on it? Yeah. Um, you know, probably the first thing, and I mentioned this in my kind of my bio is, um, growing up watching, um, different people, um, really having people determine somebody's value and worth and what the possibility uh, of what they can do as a human being totally contingent upon a status that somebody else places on them. And I'm talking about India with the, with the yeah. caste system uh, and all of that. But then, you know, I think we could be very honest and say um, that is not uncommon <laughs> in the history of the United States uh, and in America and, and the things that we have um, dealt with in terms of racism and prejudice and, um, and all of that. And so being Indian, I've always found myself in between, I feel like two worlds, you know, I'm not black and I'm not white. I'm kind of in between. And yet uh, I've always noticed and seen that um, there is a difference in how people are treated at times based off of their background or their social system or their class system, all of that. And as I got digging into the academic world, particularly in Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, I really found that the Jew Gentile distinction um, is ethnicity, but so much more in the Greco-Roman world. We're talking very much about class classism and uh, economic status. And so I began to wonder, like, what in the world does the Bible actually have to say um, about humanity's identity? And is there yeah. a, a construct? Is there a uh, conversation that's taking place in scripture where there is any type of justification for somebody who has a superiority or an inferiority based off of whatever category. And that's really what led me to the image of God study. And as I was reading through commentaries and, you know, especially in the area of bioethics, uh, I kept coming across this uh, theological distinction that said at the fall, Genesis 3, that the image of God was broken. And I began to think about that and just wonder, one, is that true? Uh, because elsewhere in scripture after that, humanity is still mentioned as having the image of God. Right. Um, and so then I began to think about like the consequences of what that could mean and how that relates to a human's identity. Um, and then the justification systems that take place as a result of the thought that an image can be broken. So the big question is, if the image of God can be broken, does that mean that there are some humans that have a greater or lesser degree? of the image. Yeah. And if they do or they don't, what are the criteria by which they have a greater or lesser image? And yeah. when we go into kind of colonial America and we look at the slave trade and we look at even uh, some defense for um, some 
Christians in the Americas that have said, hey, uh, slavery is okay. We actually see and find that there was this thought, this prevalent thought that the image of God was more broken in those with darker skin color than with lighter skin color, which in a sense became a justification for slavery. And uh, even Luther, who we love, right? Uh, Some people love him. Uh, There's this uh, tale of, I I wish I could see your face right now. When I said some people, that that was such... that was so classic. You know, there's this tale that says that I think he was either seven or 11 year old boy uh, who, what we know now, struggled with a mental health illness, whether it was bipolar or schizophrenia or whatever it might be. Uh, but basically, he advocated and said, well, you know, this child is not really made in the image of God because cognition isn't present and cognition right. is one of the criteria that justifies the image. And so essentially, we can just go ahead and drown him, <laughs> you know, and, and kind of oh, kind of be done with it. So we see well, the travesty of this. Yeah. And, and I want to get to that travesty because I think, you know, as you were saying, it definitely has a lot to do with slavery and even the treatment of just people, even if it's not slaved, enslaved people, but treatment, right? But what I find really interesting that I really want to kind of bring up before we get there is a little comparison between your storied way into this conversation and mine. And mine is probably mm-hmm. your more blase fair you know, growing up Pentecostal, evangelical, very white, you know, Eurocentric formed theological perspective, that those questions that you started asking when, before you dove into the image of God question, were not questions that drove our theological processing in my spheres, Hmm. right? And some degree, it went the other, it went the opposite direction. It just went first from like, First, here is what the image of God is. Now let that inform everything else. But the problem, at least as I see it now with that is, it comes with a loaded assumption that we can understand the image of God without realizing that we're embodied beings. Hmm. That the image of God, as I'm going to explore it as a white male, is going to often look a lot more white and male than it is anything else. And it's going to be informed by my experiences, how I feel about father figures, how I feel about what I think God should be, and therefore this is the image of God, and that's what it explains for everyone. So I just think it's interesting to start that you know your kind of diving into the question of the of the image of God actually comes from an almost an honest embodied space mm. where mine came from an almost dishonest, like objective, false objective space. To think that we can understand it just so objectively and then by it judge everything else. Yeah. But that was just a thought. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it was mind blowing for me. I was like, oh yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I think one of the thoughts is you just, what you kind of eloquently just displayed, uh, I I mean, so many thoughts. One is, this is why it is necessary, in my opinion, for um, the one another language of Paul in the New Testament to be enacted by the people of God. And what I mean by that is, unless I present my story and my background and my experiences and and the situations that I've walked through uh, with others in an honest uh, way, we will live in the echo chambers of our own experiences. You know, and so right. I think what you just described is like, yeah, you, you didn't have any, you, you know, but then I, I would say, well, why would you? 
your situation, your context. And, and so I think there has to be a certain level of empathy of walking into these conversations of really considering the other side of saying, yeah. oh yeah, there is, I mean, we know this in academia, right? Like when you follow the footnotes <laughs> of an argument <laughs> in a book, you become very aware of how much you do not know <laughs> in yeah. a discussion. Uh, you know, I got into the whole uh, Israelite monotheism, polytheism, henotheism, or what I'm going to argue for, uh, mono Yahwehism. Like, was the early Israelite tradition truly monotheistic in the way that we describe it? And once you dig into that conversation, it is much more complex than what right. we're taught in Sunday school. That's like monotheism, one God and only one God, you know? So I, it's just, you it's get amazing. The other monolatry thing too, yeah, right? Yeah, monolatry, yep. Mm-hmm. And henotheism, yep. mm-hmm. Oh, you got the better. You say it better than I do. Um, <laughs> you, but you already know this. We just fake it until somebody who actually knows what they're saying. And then they're like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's not the whole filioque, filioque. Right. <laughs> filioque. It doesn't matter, right. really. Um, but no, I think that's really fascinating, right? I mean, it, uh, and I, it's one of those things that I wish I could have been informed of earlier on in my theological education. Mm-hmm. Because everything was given to me so oversimplistically. And, and, you know, this is a whole other conversation, one that I, I want to find someone to have, you know, a really much better than I can have informed conversation on like child development and especially kind of theological, biblical child development in the sense that as a child, all these things were made so plain and so simple for me that as someone who now studies it going, how is it that this was just so like tossed out there mm-hmm. as if like, this is just the, the, the simple thing, the simple answer. And you just accept this and don't worry about it Yeah. to where I think that causes a lot of, you know, problems for people in their late teens, early twenties, especially those who go to Bible college and all of a sudden they start going, none of that, none <laughs> of that makes sense anymore. Right. Right. That, that monotheism, that, it's not even in the Old Testament. And where did someone come up with that? Right. Um, but the image of God, how is it How is it that we get from a place of going, the image of God can be marred or broken in somebody and therefore I can treat them differently or poorly? Yeah. So um, I think there's two things there. Uh, one is I think in honesty, in our conversation, we, you and I might, might have nuances in how we even understand this, you know, and I would have to admit that I think I've got to sit with this for a little bit because I'm worried that part of my response to this is uh, polarizing because of the total opposite side, you know? So, so I right. might be overreacting on it. I don't think I am, but you never really know until you, you sit with something for, for some time and you have these types of conversations. Um, and so the or until the person on the internet calls you a heretic. Right. Which, you know, you I mean, that, that's probably happening right now, you know, and I don't even oh, know it in, sure. my, in my DMs. Um, but I think the first thing is how did we get to like, I'm just going to ask a series of questions. How did we get to a place where we even came up with this idea of the image being broken that like, like the image itself, uh, and yeah. what does it mean that humanity is made in the image of God, you know? And, and it's really interesting. I think it's what Genesis 126 that, um, we're described as being made in the image and likeness, two distinct Hebrew words. It's not 
it's not synonymous. Like it's not the same thing that's being um, re- repeated. There's a distinctive of being said uh, that you and I are made in the image and the likeness uh, of yeah. God. And so the first thing that I would say, and I'm really getting this from a guy, Frank, um, John Kilner, John F. Kilner, who he wrote a great book called Dignity and Destiny. Uh, and he deals with the area of uh, bioethics. But the first thing I would suggest is maybe the question or what we're seeing happening at the fall might not be totally accurate. And so here's what I would I would propose. At the fall, I don't necessarily see the image of God being broken, but what I do see is humanity being broken. Um, I love Francis Schaeffer. Yeah. He's got this quote. He says, when man sinned, the purpose of his existence was smashed. Um, you know, uh, Plantinga says that uh, when sin takes place, I'm paraphrasing him, essentially, uh, shalom was despoiled. Like it, like it was, it was ruined, that the peace that was, that was present. And so what I think might be a better helpful understanding of the image of God is an idea of the image as a status and as a standard. And so, again, this mm. is all I'm drawing from Kilner, and this is kind of ontology. This is the area of your expertise. So uh, you all are always a little hesitant when you're dabbling in a different playing field with somebody who's actually doing their dissertation in the area of ontology. But um, I, would... I, I pretend nothing about ontology. Okay, so... Like, uh, I dabble. I'm a dabbler of it. Okay, well, that that's even more, more than me. Um, but here's what I would say is the status is is something that is irrevocable. The status is something that's irrevocable. It is it is placed on us. However, even though we have the status of the image because humanity is broken, we are now no longer able to live up to that status, which is why there is the great need for Jesus. And so the illustration that Kilner uses, I believe, is a blueprint. If uh, there's a blueprint and every illustration breaks down, but if there's a blueprint and somebody builds uh, the wall based off of the, the blueprint, but unbeknownst to them, the bricks that they're using are actually like deformed, right? From the inside. Is the blueprint itself deformed? Is it broken or are the bricks broken? And so we'd say, well, the bricks mm. are broken. The blueprint doesn't become marred <laughs> because the, right. the wall begins, you know. So, so this is where I think we have this first kind of basic understanding of at the fall, I really think that ontologically in our reality, in our realness, in, in the existence, the image is still there. However, humanity is deeply broken. And because humanity is deeply broken, we're unable to live up to the um, to the, to our status uh, as image bearers. And so that is, you know, uh, why we have essentially the fall and all of the disparity that takes place uh, within humanity. And part of that question, I think, and and why it becomes so blurry is, is what in humanity is broken. Yeah. Right. Like that's the question. I think that becomes the sticky point is saying to make a distinction between the image of God being broken or humanity being broken, you know, what, what is the distinction there? How, how do we kind of talk about that? Do we talk about the, the physical body as being broken? You know, and as a kid, that was the case partially because, you know, as a kid, I was taught pre-fall, after God had created everything, Adam and Eve, they would live forever. Like they were eternal beings, but when they sinned, then their body was broken, right? right. Then sin and then death entered into the world, meaning of physical death. And then if we talk about, you know, other kind of cognitive abilities, you know, is, is it that our, 
ability to rationalize and be logical? Is that the thing that's broken? So I think the confusing part, and maybe you can kind of clarify that, is when you say something like humanity is broken because of sin, what in humanity is broken? Yeah, uh, I don't know that I'm going to say this uh, without it coming off like a cheat code, but basically it's like all of it. <laughs> what, you, what you just <laughs> described is is what is broken. And this is the danger, I think, of trying to, and I think maybe some s- systematicians would want to get into the nuances and really say attribute it to cognition or attribute it to um, physiology or something like that. And I think the danger is that I'm going to just use real life examples. I used to work in California bivocational as a minister. I worked with adults with developmental disabilities. And so um, the, the individuals that I worked with were dual diagnosis. They would have, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, something of the mental health, but probably an additional. Um, uh, physical ailment that that was present. Mm. So here's the question that I have for us: If we associate the image to um, to humanity in that way, what about the individual that doesn't have does not have the cognitive ability to quote unquote do the Roman road to, road to salvation? Right, <laughs> right. Are they not image right. bearers? Uh, so and, and so that's where I would say. Well, what does it mean that humanity is broken? I would say the environment of humanity. This is what Romans is talking about with, with all of creation is groaning and longing for the new heavens and the new earth. And so truly sin has despoiled. It has, um, it has negatively impacted uh, every crevice of created order. And I want to go back to your Genesis hypothesis really quick because I think this is intriguing. With Adam and Eve, were they truly immortal? Right, and and I think sometimes what happens is we assume that um, that it was all perfection, like true perfection, and yet from what we can tell, and you can correct me or if you have a different uh, point of a, a view on this, uh, Eden was a plot of land that right. was the abode of the deity and of humanity, a household in in, in essence. And the Great Commission for Adam and Eve as vice regents of Yahweh was to take the kingdom reign of the king in Eden and spread it to the ends of the of the earth. Well, what's happening outside of Eden? It seems to be there's still chaos. <laughs> there's right. still there's still evil. There's still things that have to be conquered to guard, to keep, to protect, to expand. So here's and I'm getting this from Gordon Wenham. I think that the tree in the middle. Um, of of Eden, not just the tree of knowledge, but the tree of life of um, is actually the reward that is going to be presented to Adam and Eve for being faithful vice regents after they've done the Great Commission, after they've gone out and done the work that they were supposed mm. to do. I don't necessarily think it was the sadistic, like, I'm going to tempt you and make you fall type of situation, right? Like, right. Yeah, I actually think it was there for a reason. And I think what it was there for was to actually catapult them into the reward. Like, hey, there's something really good that's here waiting for you. Right. Now be faithful in your responsibilities, right. you know? Um, and so as, even- if, as if there was a purpose in creation, right? right. As if a greater purpose than, than maybe our over 
generalize, spiritualize, just to spend time with God. Well, yeah, that's part of it, but I don't think that's just it. Right. I and think so, God actually gives us a mission. Man, and this I think is so important in the conversation of the image of God of why I'm hesitant to attach it so linearly to cognition or physiology or these other things, because I do think that the image of God, living up to the image of God, um, and retaining the image of God and being faithful representatives of, um, of, of God and his image ultimately um, is to be faithful in these areas that Adam and Eve ultimately were found unfaithful and where Christ himself right. who's not referred to as made in the image of likeness but Christ himself is the exact representation of, right. of the Father, right? And so that is now the new ideal for us. Christ accomplishes all that it is Adam and Eve were not able to accomplish and so it is in Christ that we're able to actually live up to that ideal. Um, and so I think that even that example of Eve um, and what Adam and Eve were actually supposed to do paints a picture of the Edenic ideal of what true image bearers are supposed to do and how they're supposed to function in a kind of, you know, for lack of better words, prelapsarian kind of context. Oh boy, you're throwing out the fun. <laughs> you're not a super lapsarian, are you sure? I don't know. Well, let's stay out of that. I don't know either. Yeah, let's do yeah, let's, that. Let's those words that. mean nothing to me. Right. Uh, but there's a lot of theological debate. Oh man, um, and I think that's. I think it's interesting because when we start thinking about the image of God, and maybe we can dive into this part next, and actually recognizing what that term means in its purpose versus what it means in human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, to put it that way, so for instance, you know, I, there's a lot of people that that talk about. I think of a theologian Donald Thorson who, in his kind of like basic theological textbook for college students talks about like the three, the three R's of the image of God, right? Like it's, it's, it's rationality, which we've already talked about why there's a problem with rationality because what happens to someone who is whether in a vegetative state or has Mm -hmm. some kind of mental and cognitive disability, right? There's, there's relationship, which a lot of people like to use. Um, but that's going to, still going to ask us a question, right? Especially in the way that we as Christians think about faith being a cognitive thing to start. How can one have a relationship with God if they can't reason again, right? Or or have problems with rationalizing. So relationship can be tricky, but then there's that third one, responsibility, right? That the image of God is actually a responsibility for something or Mm -hmm. to something, Mm -hmm. right? But that responsibility demands there must have been a purpose or a reason for that image of God. And so maybe if we can talk about that for a minute, what is even today the the responsibility, the reason, the uh, why we are creating the image of God, why it might be not broken, but something else, right? Mm-hmm. What's the best way to say there? And then what what do we do? Yeah, so I'll go back to the example that I had of um, working with adults with developmental disabilities and saying, okay, well, if there's a purpose, but you can't articulate and, and all these other challenges with cognition, like how do how, how does an individual with a developmental disability bear the image of God or resemble the image of God? And I don't know that I've got articulate words for this other than a feeling that I can say that during my seven years of working 
hand in hand, day in and day out with so many um, adults, uh, even children. My wife works with children with autism. I can say that my faith and my understanding of the goodness of God and my hope for humanity in an unexplainable way, which is probably not helpful for you right now, was actually bolstered through the witness of um, these individuals that yeah. some theologians would have said, well, they can't bear the image because they don't have cognition. And yet, because the mark of God's image is still on them, they're still functioning and acting in a way to show a semblance of the good of creation, you know? Um, and so I think of this in the same way of glory. Like if, if you were to ask somebody like, what is God's glory? Can we define it? <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's like, well, what is it? It's this weightiness. It's this otherness. It is, it's, it, it's this undescribable and yet glorious thing. And so in the same way, I think like with the image, there are tangible and the intangible that um, the image is actually making its witness even actively and passively. So for a person in a vegetative state, I actually, I actually still think that the image is still making a witness because you see the right. frailty of humanity in that moment, you know, like, like there's still things that are taking place that God is working in to show something about himself um, or it's causing something to happen inside of us. I think of prayer, you know, this, the, Famous thing is like prayer might not be about changing others. It might actually be about you changing in the process of prayer. And I almost think of right. that same thing. Like actually you and I in that moment, we are, are being changed. We're being we're able to understand the image better of our role and responsibility of showing compassion, empathy, and love and care for others um, in those environments. And so that's probably where I would say like there's these tangible technical things that we can do, but there are also these intangible things, just like God's glory. There's this weightiness to it that until you're actually in it, you can't really exactly explain, but you feel it. You know, and I think we talked yep. about this offline the other day, like, like, like the mystery of God is present right. in, in that. And yet in our world, at least in my world, we run away from the mystery because if there is a mystery that might show that we actually are, I don't know, not smart, not intelligent enough, not scientific enough. Right. Uh, and so, but at some point, I think our theology has to bring us to this place where we say, yeah, there is even a mystery of the image being so totally present in these unexplainable situations. Yeah. And I think, I think you're, you're right on there. And, and it's, it's one of those things that maybe with the image of God, we just need a better, better, both a better imagination of what it could be, but also a biblical understanding of what the image is supposed to be in light of that representation. Right. And, and maybe if you can dive into kind of maybe in its cultural context and its time and in its space, what image really meant might be helpful in kind of seeing about, again, I want to get to that bigger topic, the how it's been used to enslave people and and treat people poorly rather than actually treat them as loved by God. But first, maybe start there. Like, what is it really in its context when we talk about that image word? 
Yeah, so the image word, I think we talked about this last time that, that you and I were on, but basically it's really intriguing that that word, the image and likeness, the shalem of, of humanity, that is um, that is a, a word that was used in reference to a representative of the of the deity, you know? And yeah. so the rep this is what you were talking about before of embodied and vivification. And so we get into some ancient Near Eastern parallels with uh, Mesopotamian kind of um, Ugaritic texts where we really do see the sense that um, the deity would make himself known, visible, uh, relational um, to others through an image. And so like in ancient practices, they would do things like vivification practices in order to essentially embody and enliven, enliven the, um, the image itself with the mm-hmm. essence of the deity, right? So these are all kind of pagan whatever um, understandings, but these are the words that are being used to describe really int- interestingly of humanity being made in the image. And I think it's also very intriguing that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God, and then the act of the aliveness for a lack of very academic term, like the aliveness of humanity is ha- when does that happen? When when are we vivified? when God breathes into us. Right. So it's almost right. this reversal of what the pagans were doing. Right. And it was, it's God himself who's making himself um, knowable to us. And we see the best picture of this in the incarnation. Like that is what happens um, with Christ. And so that is, I think what I would draw us to in terms of that ancient kind of historical context of a being who is embodied, enlivened, vivified, but um, there is this intention for them to represent the deity, for for them to be able to make the deity knowable. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think about that same word, right, in Hebrew image, uh, and I slaughter it so I don't say it, right, Um, is is the same word used for idol. Yep. And we we miss it when we think that image can't be connected to what other people within the ancient Near East world were trying to do by worshiping idols in this recognition that if we are the idol of God, it's not because we are to be worshiped as if we're God, but because we are God's enacting in the world. Yes. Like the representation, we actually are supposed to represent, and this goes back to what you were mentioning about Jesus being able to be that representation and it's fully fleshed out a proper human way, being both God and being both man, he was actually able to be what Paul calls the second Adam, right? The Mm -hmm. real representation of humanity, what this was always supposed to be and how we've messed it up so much is reflected in the person of Christ, right? And what I, what I, I think some people struggle with is recognizing that the image of God has so much to do with representation mm-hmm. and how we are representing, which is why we might be able to say, look, someone who may have cognitive uh, disability can very much represent God within the world just because they cannot do the same things you can do. And just in the same way, oh gosh, here we go. Didn't mean to bring this up, but you know, here we are. Just in the same way that someone like Ravi Zacharias yeah. can, can do what seems to be God's work while behind the scenes having so much issue in his life in terms of even what the report said, raping women, yeah. right? 
mm-hmm. sexual misconduct because the representation isn't a, I don't want to say it's not true or not real. Cause that's, you know, this gets into like a lot of problems that we're not, don't really want to like dive into, but right. But when we talk about representation being God's representative, it's not an all, uh, it, it should be an all or nothing thing, but in reality, we're complicated beings affected by the sinfulness, this broken humanity that makes it impossible for us to be perfect representations of God. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and really what you're drawing on is the, those same words, likeness and image are used um, in ancient Near Eastern worlds to dis, to describe the king or the pharaoh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially the pharaoh being understood as the son of the deity. And so uh, it was it was the way that the gods would make themselves known and to represent. And yet there was this idea that if the Pharaoh, I just read this other day and it was this crazy thing. Like if the Pharaoh uh, did something wrong to really tick off the gods and now there is plague and famine, what the Pharaoh would do, this is crazy. The Pharaoh do is they would get a representative um, and and they would give up their pharaohness, their 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 title or whatever, huh. and they would actually have a what well, we would be, this is talking about substitutionary atonement. They would actually have a substitute pharaoh step in huh. for them. That substitute pharaoh would get their own wife, the whole the whole nine yards for like a period of thirty or sixty days or something. And essentially, at the end of it, it's like if the um, the famine ended or whatever it was, it was evidence that the punishment was kind of spared or sent over, and the substitute. It would be killed <laughs> along with his whole household, and then the the other huh. pharaoh would step back in and take over, t- take on you know his his rightful even, reign and wait, rule, even though it was the other pharaoh's fault. Yes, <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, I think it was. That's um, fascinating. Yeah, it was. In, it's actually in a book about um, uh, idols and embodiment and and all that kind of stuff. Man, uh, can we go back to that? Like, hey, I made a mistake. All this stuff is going bad. I'm gonna have someone else pretend to be me for 60 days. We'll kill them and I'll come back. And I'll come back and everything's going to be good. Everything is going to be good. So there's even (laughs) this sense in the, in the ancient world of trying to make, make sense of, of this. Like, I want to be a true representative, but I can't be a true representative. So I've got to make up a, a way to make it seem like I'm a true representative. So I'm going to just scapegoat this other person. <laughs> and they right. will be they will be the excuse, you know? Which um, Israelites did as well, right? With this with the literal scapegoat. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like the let's heap our sins on this goat and send it out into the into wilderness. The wilderness. Yeah. As mm. a means of saying it's it's gone from us. It's not even just it's it's disappeared. Yeah, it's departed, you know, and um, you know, in the wilderness is the domain of essentially the the, the you know, Hasatan, the, the Satan. And so right. it's just all of that stuff, man. It gets so so intriguing, but um to to bring it back uh to the idea of representation and the idea of um of representing an, another person, I do think we're in this tension of wanting to be faithful, legitimate honorable representatives and yet because of the stain of sin and this is why i really think that the better way to understand the fall is that the human is broken is that the stain of sin breaks the human so we're not we're unable to meet up to the standard that the representation requires which is again why i turn to why we are you know progressive sanctification we are in this constant state of trying to um become more and more like jesus um and so yeah 
I think I think that we're finding all these ancient Near Eastern parallels to even the plight that we find ourselves in today with something modern like a and it's not just Ravi Zacharias. I mean, it, it's going to be the person tomorrow that this happens to, and it, we can go back to the laundry list of people before us from you know all kinds of major ministries um, where where just the horrific takes place, and that begs the question: Does that mean that you know that Yahweh, that God Himself, is not good? That he's not faithful, he's not capable, because yeah. now the representative has <laughs> ultimately failed failed the people, you know, and failed right. being a good representative of the king himself. And so, how do we handle the this reality? And and that's the thing where it how how do you handle this reality, right? Like, uh, which is a big subject for a lot of the New Testament. It's a big subject for Paul. It's this this indwelling spirit it's this there is something more that has to happen here that that is going to help in that representation in more holistic healthy godlike ways namely the spirit of god right like the spirit is that that thing and i i, I would love to go down there because that's kind of more of maybe even what i think about and study a lot but mm-hmm. i want to get to that kind of salient hot topic part in which how we've used this idea of a broken image of God to enslave, to treat others as less than, and maybe even if someone might think to themselves, well, I believe that, you know, the image of God is broken in someone else, but I've never enslaved anyone, you know, and I've never participated in systemic racism or even just denied such thing. Uh, like we talked about the last time we chatted, mm-hmm. those who deny kind of things because they don't really understand. Oh gosh, no, putting that down, put it down, right? That's a, uh, we've done so many podcasts, but we're going to keep doing more, but that's not this conversation. But, you know, they may actually be doing something else such as looking at someone in, for instance, India, where 99. What three percent of people aren't Christian? Yeah, it's crazy. And how many of those have never even heard of Jesus? And yet we can look at people who are in that situation of being unevangelized without a a physical witness in terms of humanity or Christians, and go, yeah, it's okay because you know that's what they deserve. They deserve to die and go to hell because the image of God is broken. Doesn't matter. Yeah. How do we get there? Why do we get there? Yeah, I mean that's that's a huge one. I think part of it is we have not understood rightly even an Old Testament context of the Israelites and the Gentiles. You know, like like let's just talk about basic hermeneutics that um, God chose a people. So in Genesis twelve, God God pulls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which we know is actually Babel. That I mean, this is a, a connection from Genesis eleven to twelve. Mm. Uh, God pulls from the rebellious nation itself <laughs> one to become a blessing for the nations. That's the whole Abrahamic uh, promise. And yet, I think kind of what happens often is we we in the West specifically have created a superiority complex where we have become Israel. <laughs> We, yeah. we we think that we are the chosen ones, and yet a right understanding of the history of Scripture is actually no. God picked Israel. God picked Abraham from that nation, in mind that all the nations would be blessed. But we also have to deal with the fact that He did choose a people. He chose Israel, and so this is another thing of what happens when we intersect 
our context, our situation, our preference, our priority into the biblical narrative as if right. we are the point of the story. And and ultimately, we have to be glorified. Like We've got to be the ones that are going to win in the end. And if that is the lens by which we understand the story of God, then that requires us to be a people to justify it theologically, um, pragmatically, functionally in all these different areas. And so we hijack the story of God to become the story of us. And the story of us is best played out when we can leverage religion or theology or doctrine in order to um, elevate our own position and our own power and priority and subjugate the other person, whoever the other person might be, into a power, into a position of oppression. And so, and so, in fact, we're seeing the the Genesis, the Exodus narrative being played out all over again with oppressor mm. and oppression, you know. Uh, but what we've done is we've now hijacked the gospel story to 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 be the means by which we can perpetrate this grave sin. And so you yeah. look through the prophets and you look through Amos and you know Isaiah. I can't remember what it's like Isaiah fifty nine or or one of those um, you know between forty and fifty five where essentially Isaiah is condemning the people of Israel and it's like. Y'all are going to church every day. <laughs> you're seeking after God. And it's in that context that you're enslaving and oppressing the people and your worship right. is nothing to Yahweh, you know? Right. And that is the terrifying context that these people are actually think they're doing all the right things and yet their hearts are so wicked and so far away from the Lord. And I think that's what we've done with something like the image of God because really the image of God becomes our own image, so, yep. you know, the, the image in the West has to be the, you know, the the majority image uh, in order to justify so much that takes place. Uh, I would say in India, the image uh, of God in India has to be the class system because you don't have binary, you know, actually you do. So like there's this thing in India called uh, fair and lovely. If you ever meet an Indian, ask them about fair and lovely. It's this cream that you put on your, on your skin to make you lighter. Because the darker you are, the more huh. likely it is that you're out in the fields. I mean, this is the whole Song of Solomon thing with the shit right. white woman, right? Like you're out in the fields, you've been working all day, so you got a darker tan. And so what I remember my mom and dad used to do and my grandparents, they'd have this, you know, in our bedroom, they'd have this tube of fair and lovely to cover over our skin to make us lighter, make sure you got powder on your face so that we could present a, a background of view to other people to be accepted yeah. into that. And then we've called that our faith or our religion. And we've say, well, yeah, that, you know, th that's the system that gets us into power. That's, that's fascinating. Cause it, you know, again, the, the correlations of course here to the West, especially if you're white, it's to be tan. Right. Right? The opposite, the opposite reality is if you're going to be on the cover of a magazine or you're going to be, you know, whatever, if you're white, you need to be tan, right? You know, you got tanning salons cause you, you want to show that you, and I, and I don't know if it has any connection to the opposite, like, you know, being so well off that you can sit on a beach all week and not do anything. That's exactly right? what I got in my mind when you said that is I got, oh, yeah, like you can afford to tan because you can just take a vacation in the Bahamas and come back. Yeah, you're not sitting underneath fluorescent lights all day just trying to make <laughs> a paycheck to survive. Right. Right. Like, I think I think it's fascinating because, you know, we can, you know, going into the prophets, of course, is a straight way to walk away going, wow, we all suck. Yeah. Um, when we start listening to what the prophets really have to say. But, you know, I think it's really fascinating uh, because it's not the charge that's, it's not a charge that's new to Christianity. You know, the fact that we as people 
have consistently made God into our own image is a charge that's been made about Christians throughout history, that we make God look like us to justify what we do to others Mm. versus the reality that Christians should hold to that God is other, he's holy, and we have to figure out what that looks like so I can be transformed into his representative through the power of the Spirit. Mm. And we end up going the wrong way, and partially because we're never skeptical of our own views of God. Yeah. Right? Because, and, and I don't know about you, but for me, the more I study theology, I, the, the, yeah, again, this is like the, the tired trope that needs to be put down. Those who study theology fall away. Well, actually, no. For me, the reason why I might have, have been pushed to fall away is because I was told by everyone else that I couldn't study theology and stay, you know, a committed Christian. But studying theology can be decentering in the fact that it does make us have to renegotiate how we think about God and who God is. But that doesn't make a weaker faith, it makes a stronger faith. Yeah. It's just one that I can have a conversation with you and I can go, I have a really strong faith and I don't know. Yeah. I have a really strong faith and I've got questions. Yeah. And those two things don't have to be exclusive. Right. Questioning and having a strong faith should actually go hand in hand, not opposite, right? Yeah. Who wrote Hebrews? I don't know. <laughs> you know, like that's okay. Um, so you said something though that I think it's super intriguing and I just thought about it about this. And it's always dangerous to say something that just came into your mind, you know, without actually really uh, uh, studying anything. I'm just gonna say it. When I do it all about, the time. Um, uh, we make God into our own image. I think about like the great command that the Lord gives to Israel, which what is it? Don't make a graven image, right? Like, like yeah. don't, don't try to create the image. And I think what we've actually done, and when you said this, I was really like wondering, I think we've done that very thing in the most extremely offensive way um, mm. because we might not have created a wooden object right? We've done something worse. We've created almost a psychological image or construct mm-hmm. that how do you break that? At least at least images you could burn up, you know? Right. At least those things you could destroy or throw off a you cliff and they could be tear gone. Tear down for- the Asherah pole, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, Dagon can at least like fall down, like at least you have that. But what do you do with the with the mental constructs, the psychological constructs, the um, systemic constructs that we have put up mm. that are essentially gods to us that we have turned into the the, the graven image? But the image isn't isn't a physical image. It is yeah. this psychological, <laughs> societal no, man, that's, image. That's so. I think that's a really powerful thing to kind of have to process for a while. Cause I mean, we've got tropes that kind of give us that, right? The pen is mightier than the sword. Mm-hmm. Well, why is it mightier? Because it's an idea and ideas take hold and they take root and they're deeper than a picture. Because like you said, in the physical sense, I can destroy the picture and the picture's gone. Like I can think of pictures that I have of me as a kid that I know the picture but I don't really know it, right? Like I, I've forgotten little bits and parts. I've, I don't know what I was wearing, but I can tell you about the picture, but I can't tell you what it is because I haven't seen the picture in you know 10 years. It's, it's fading. But ideas, they stick and they hold. And like you said, with that kind of like, when we create God in our own image, we end up feeling like we've done it. Mm-hmm. I've got it. 
this is it. This is who God is. And no one can tell me otherwise. And that becomes dangerous whenever we start making God in into a fi- false idol, right? Yeah. When we start saying, God must, God must be okay with slavery because God is a, is a hierarchical God that looks down upon this and this and this, right? Or God yeah. it must be. And breaking those, I mean, as we've probably seen even in current cultural context, people who get ideas in their head about whether it's political voting and how that works or about some kind of secret cabal behind everything else, (laughs) that once that idea has taken root, it really can transform people. And it's the idea. And I think that same thing happens with God, as you're saying, why it takes us to be really responsible thinkers about God mm-hmm. in order to say we are tearing down the false idols. The reality with God is, again, this is the mystic kind of reader of me and thinking of someone like Gregory of Nyssa. Right. You know, the, the more that we do that, the more we recognize how little of God we know and it seems as if we're going into darkness, mm-hmm. right? Because it seems as if God is just way too big for us to ever really comprehend. But actually, when we go into that path, when we go down that path, it's a path of peace. Mm-hmm. And right? now, it's not one of, of of struggle. It's a path of peace after yeah. a little ways. Like we've got to get into it first before we can find that rest. Yeah. And I would add to it, it's, it's a path of peace that produces a great sense of humility Mm, and that yeah. I think humility is a loss. Like that's my big thing. Like I want to do humble theology. You know, I really want humility to be the mark of my theology, of my pursuits, yeah. of my writing, of my thinking, of my speaking, of my living, of my being. Like, and again, I just look at Jesus. Like I think Jesus is the the model, the picture picture of it. Um, but I do think that there is something so important of being able to get to the end of, and you know, as we circle back onto the image of God conversation, say. Somebody might critique this conversation and say, well, y'all never actually told us exactly what the image is and what the image is not. And and I need some some binary, you know, A plus B equals C. Um, and I would just leave it with why? W- what is so necessary about that versus right. saying, hey, we have this idea of what the image is in all these different places. And at the end of it, we come into a greater awareness of the mystery of God, that he would so deem it good that humanity would bear the image. And yeah. um, and thus we have a responsibility with that image, regardless yeah. of your cognition or lack of, regardless of your um, you know, social uh, economic status or not like all of those things like it does not demarcate or take away from this ontological truth that we are image bearers of god yeah and and we don't have time to go into it but you and i mentioned it you know my my thoughts on it may be a bit more eastern orthodox than others in, in the sense of it's not broken but it may be marred may need to be cleaned up there may be some work that needs to be done that the spirit needs to do within us for us to be good representatives, right? Right. But it doesn't mean that anyone's lost it or that anyone's too far gone or that just because they haven't heard the name of Jesus that they're that they're not they're they're not worth as much, right? Yeah. Or any of those things, the color of someone's skin or their race, nationality. None of that has any bearing on the image of God. And therefore all people have equal worth to God. 
Mm-hmm. And that even goes between Christians and non-Christians. There yeah. is no one worth more. There is no one who's more blessed than others. Like that's another kind of thing that we've got to, oh gosh, we're at an hour, at least according to to my clock. So we can't, we cannot yeah. go into I that. mean, I, I've got the topics of conversation for the next one. Common grace, natural law, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> uh, there's so, there's so much here uh, to unpack. And even you just mentioned it. What is, what is the responsibility of the image for the image of God for the believer versus the image of God for the non-believer is like, yeah. you know, what are the implications there? Yeah. And the implications are big and that's where, you know, it gets scary where the conversation can be a hard conversation with those who are unwilling to, to explore it and really listen because that's, we can easily get into some places that people just start pointing fingers and start screaming heretic and you're wrong. And, and, and that's not true. And the Bible, you know, easy get into that space, but Joel, how can, uh, my listeners follow up with you? How can they keep up with what you're doing with all of your good work, uh, with how you can blow their mind daily Oh man, uh, how can I do that? Um, you know, the, my my primary means of communication nowadays is uh, through my Instagram. So just uh, follow me at at my last name is Mudamali M U D D A M A L L E. There's not many of us out there, and so when you see the image of the Indian guy, uh, you'll know that that's me. <laughs> and uh, I basically just do everyday theology, and then the same thing for my website, it's just mudamali.com, and. Um, not as much going on there as I try to finish up a couple more chapters of his dissertation and I don't get stuck with that ABD title, right? That's like the, 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 the fear of every PhD student is they will just end oh. up being, Oh yeah, I'm PhD ABD. But like, don't That's, be that guy. You just spoke to me. You just <laughs> called me out real hard. Joel. I've had that thought like literally today I was editing chapter two and I was like, you know, ABD doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> Oh gosh. Okay. Let's, before I start getting an anxiety and panic attack over this, we're going to have to end, cut it out. But Joel, thanks so much for being with me, man. I really appreciate it.